news of your redeeming love. Amen. So I grew up in a household that was very divided about time. My father, who was more of a type A personality, never had enough time. He was always rushing to get things done. There were always more things on his to-do list than you could ever possibly imagine fitting in to one day. He wanted to be places not on time, but ahead of time. And he always wanted to make sure that he was not just prepared, but over-prepared for whatever was going to happen. My mom, on the other hand, mother had all the time in the world. I don't ever remember her being rushed or worried about being on time or being fully prepared. She had all the time in the world, and it drove dad crazy because he wanted to be there. It is a testament to their love and the grace of God that they've been married over 60 years now. But I grew up in this divided household about how we manage our time. And I bet it's not the only household that struggles with those issues. There was a study done uh, just a couple years ago where they went out and they were uh, interviewing and taking surveys of Americans about how does the average American spend their day. And they asked questions, well, how much time do you spend per day in hygiene? How much time per day in exercise? How much time per day working at your uh, employment? How much time do you spend working at home? How much time do you spend preparing and eating meals? How much time do you spend exercising? How much time do you spend doing chores? How much time do you spend with your children? How much time do you spend with your friends? All those things. How do you spend your time? And when they added up how the average American spends their time, they found that the average American spends 38 hours a day. Obviously, time management is something that we can all improve upon. But I want to suggest that there's more to time management than, than the usual um, uh, platitudes that we are given by the world. That the key to good time management is the understanding that time is a gift given to us by God. And time is something to be spent in the glory of God. Now, first I want to deal with, there are three common myths perpetrated about time management that, that we just need to, to acknowledge that they're not true. The first is the myth of quality time is better than quantity time. We see this all the time with how we relate to our children, to how we, how, you really think it's okay if you're there for your son's home run or you're there for your daughter's winning layup at the basketball game, but you don't make any of the other games or practices? Or what if you only showed up for work when it's time to close the deal, but you weren't there to lay the groundwork, to establish the relationships through the negotiating? I, no one gets to just show up for the quality time. Life is not an either-or quality versus quantity. It's a both-and. You have to show up. A huge part of life is showing up and being there for people. Now, when you show up, you should also be engaged, and you should make that quality time. It is not an either-or. Our time must be spent qualitatively and quantitatively. 
The second myth about time management is that we need to be productive with our time. You know, there's all sorts of business gurus out there selling books and making lots of money. You know, Stephen Covey and Peter Drucker and uh, Kenneth Blanchard and uh, Warren Bennis, all those guys selling books who will make you more productive with your time. There was a study that came out just a couple weeks ago by the University of Warwick that proved conclusively, they say, what most of us have felt for quite a while. They proved conclusively that happy workers are more productive. And they went through all this you know, uh, social science study and they discovered and what they claim is that a happy employee is 12% more productive than an unhappy employee. So they recommend doing things to make sure that the emotional health of the, the office or the workplace is a happy one. They're very big on plants. There should be plants in the workplace. But 12% um, more productive. And that got me thinking. Well, if half the employees are productive employees, is the reverse true? Are productive employers, employees happier people? And so I did a little research online for this, and I, I was able to come across some interesting studies. This was in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, now, it's 2010, so it's a few years. But in the Wall Street Journal, um, they had a list of the world's most productive workforce. The top six countries with the most productive workforce in the world. And this is built on uh, uh, GDP and all these things that economists do. But here's the list of, in, in uh, 2010, the countries with the most productive workforces. Number one, Norway. Number two, Singapore. Number three, the United States. Number four, Switzerland. Number five, Hong Kong. And number six, the Netherlands. Those are the six most productive workforces. Then I found an article in Forbes magazine from 2011 that had done a similar study, but they looked at where are the happiest workers in the world. And here are the top six countries from the happiest workers in the world. Number one is the United States, happiest workers in the world. Number two is Brazil, three is Colombia, four is Australia, and then tied for fifth is Spain and Venezuela. Now here's what I noticed. There's only one company on the list of happiest workers and the list of productive workers. It's the United States. So that tells us two things. First, yay, good to be us. <laughs> but B, there's no correlation between productivity and happiness. The most productive people are not necessarily the happiest people. Now, don't get me wrong, productivity is good. Please don't tell anyone here on staff that I'm not into productivity, okay? Don't say that. Your boss is a big fan of productivity, I'm sure. Productivity is a good thing, but productivity is not the only value in how we determine how to spend our time. There are other issues at stake besides productivity. And the third myth that we need to explode is the myth of the balanced life. You hear a lot from people on, on um, particularly it seems like on 
on uh, public TV and pub, uh, NPR uh, who talk about the balanced life. I got to tell you, friends, I've never had a balanced life. And I'm guessing most of you have not had a balanced life. Wouldn't it be beautiful if we always were able to live in our sweet spot? But that's just not how it works. There have been times in my life when I was younger, for instance, when I was in seminary and in graduate school, I had to pour an inordinate amount of my time, effort, and energy into my studies, and I neglected other parts of my life. There have been other times when I had to pour a lot of my time and my energy into my young children. There have been times when I've had to pour a lot of time and energy into my career, and at other times, another. right now, I've got elderly parents that, that take up time and energy. That's the way it works in life. There are different phases and different times for everything. And there are some times in life where this needs more attention and energy, this needs more attention. The, the key is to be able to recognize what needs attention and when, and to be able to devote your time and attention where it's needed, when it's needed, to not get stuck in a rut so that it's always your career or always your children or always your family obligations. You don't want to get stuck in a rut, and you also don't want to overcorrect so that you go dramatically from one to the next to the other. It's kind of like this. If you've ever driven a high-performance sports car, you know, a Porsche or a Maserati, one of those sports cars, their, their steering is tight, and it is so sensitive that when you're driving those sports cars, if you turn that wheel just a little to the left, man, you're going to the left. They are very sensitive as opposed to driving, say, a boat. When you're on the water, you're always correcting, you know? When you're on a boat, your hand is rarely steady. You're always going a little back and forth, a little back and forth, always just subtly correcting, all right? So what you don't want to do in a boat is go to the left and stay there, unless you want to go in circles, or you don't want to overcorrect. You don't want to get into a rut and you don't want to make dramatic overcorrections in life. And that's the way our time works also. We don't want to get into ruts, but we also don't want to have these dramatic swings and overcorrections. But the idea that we somehow should constantly live in this sweet spot, I think, is a myth. That's not the way life works. That's not how we spend our time. The world tries to get us to buy into these things, but the world has a different agenda than God's agenda. And I think if we are serious about uh, looking at the questions about how should we spend our time and, and if we see time as a gift, and you know, how do we make the most of the moments and the days and the years we have? How do we invest our time? Well, there's two things. First, I think we have to constantly remind ourselves that whatever time we have, whether it be brief or long, it's a gift from God. No one deserves to be alive. No one deserves any amount of time. It's all a gift. It's all an expression of God's love and graciousness. Time is a gift. What would it be like if, if you were invited to a party, a big party, let's say a 50th anniversary or a, a 21st birthday, you know, one of the big milestones, and you were invited to a gift, and, and you knew it was or a, a party, you knew it was coming up, so you wanted to get the perfect gift. And let's say perhaps you had to travel someplace to get the gift, or, or you had to spend a lot of time online finding just the right gift and right size, and you get it, and then you spent a great deal of time and effort uh, beautifully wrapping it and, and putting the perfect bow on it, and you wrote 
you found the car and you wrote the most beautiful thing on the car and you showed up at the, at the party and you gave the host the gift and, and they didn't even notice. They didn't even acknowledge. There was no thank you or anything. You'd be heartbroken. Well, our lives, our days, our years, our moments are God's gift to us. We need to constantly be in thanksgiving, expressing gratitude to God for whatever time God has blessed us with. So first of all, how do we spend our time? We spend it in thanksgiving and a spirit of gratitude. The second thing is, I'm not so sure it matters what you do with your time as much as it matters how you do your time. You know, I don't think it matters so much if you're changing diapers or if you're pouring over spreadsheets or if you're grocery shopping or if you're shooting hoops with your children or if you're sitting at the bedside of someone who's ill or if you're, uh, if you're at the bank making a deposit, or if you're at the gas station filling. It's not what we do, it's how we do it. And the key is to practice the presence of God no matter what we're doing in life. Do you remember Fiddler on the Roof? One of my all-time favorite musicals. Um, Tevye was such a great example of this. Remember, Tevye just had these amazing little casual conversations with God all the time, everywhere. Whether he was at home, sitting in his bed, whether he was on the road, walking, whether he was sitting in the tavern, constantly in conversation with God about any and everything. This was a man who fully practiced the presence of God in his life, especially in the mundane average and ordinary things. Friends, we need to learn to cultivate that discipline. That no matter where we're at, what we're doing, who we're with, no matter if this is one of the, the big moments of life or just another day, to be aware that Christ is with us. This day is a gift from God to be celebrated, to be treasured, and to be shared with our Lord. It's not so much what you do as how you do your time. Now, I promised every week I was going to give you a tool, a, a discernment a discipline to help you make decisions in your life. And we talked about uh, the difference between deciding and discerning. And we talked about that the first thing we need to do is be real, be honest, confess our sins, about who we are. We talked about going to the Lord in prayer and seeking the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. We talked about reading scriptures and really getting into scripture, not just for the easy trite answers, but for what it really has to say to us. Today, the discipline of discernment I want to share with you is very basic. It's this. Open your eyes. Look around. In Psalm 19, I think David puts it so beautifully. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. 
every civilization, every culture, as far back as you can go, has had a sense of the sacred, of the holy, of the divine. Some cultures have, have gone so far as to, to mark out what they would call sacred grounds or sacred places, whether it's Guadalupe Peak or it's the Badlands of South Dakota or it's the waters of the mighty Mississippi River. There were places filled with such grandeur, such magnificence, such awe-inspiring vistas that they couldn't be in that place without having a sense of God's work in that place. The heavens declare the glory of God. Some of the most devout Christians in the world are physicists and biologists and people who delve into the mysteries of science because they are overcome by the awe of God's work. Epistemology is the study of uh, knowledge. How do we know things? In theology and in faith, we talk about revelation. Revelation is a subset of epistemology. Revelation is what is revealed or shown to us. Uh, we, we talk about God opening the curtain to let us in on what's going on, what has been revealed to us. Calvin used to talk about two forms of revelation, special revelation and general revelation. Now, special revelation is the Word of God. And we know that the primary uh, manifestation of the Word of God is Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. When we talk about the Word of God, we're talking about Jesus Christ. And the secondary manifestation of the Word of God is the Scriptures, because it is the Scriptures that lead us to the primary manifestation, Jesus Christ. And when we're reading the Scriptures correctly, they always lead us to Jesus Christ. And the third form of special revelation is the faithful proclamation of the gospel because the faithful proclamation of the gospel is built on the scriptures and leads us to Jesus Christ, who is the word of God. For Calvin, that's special revelation. But Calvin said that there's a, there's a, a sense of general revelation. Calvin said that no one is exempt from knowing God because he said, you can look out around you and see the evidence of God at work in the world. You can look at, at beautiful mountains and oceans and, and, and beautiful sunsets and sunrise, and you know that God is at work. He also talked about how God does some of his best work through the average and ordinary, average and ordinary moments in life, average and ordinary people in life. Now, how might that change how we go about our daily lives if we were truly practicing the presence of God and thinking that God is at work in my life doing something through that sales clerk, through that waiter, through that person you just rub shoulders with at the convenience store, through your boss, God does his best work through the average and ordinary people in the average and ordinary moments of our lives. Whenever I do a wedding, I always finish the blessing by quoting Colossians 3.17. And it is my word for you today. And whatever, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God through him. My friends, we are all one big decision away from being the people God created us to be. We are all one big decision away from living the lives God created us to live. Discern wisely. Amen. One of the ways that we experience the presence of God is in the sacraments. We are told in Scripture that people will come from north and south, from east and west, all kinds of people, from all kinds of places, who speak all kinds of languages and have all different skin colors and different accents and different ideas and different cultures and different traditions. And we will all come together in the great banquet hall and we will be united in Christ and Christ will be the host of that table. For us, this is a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. This is not a Presbyterian table. It doesn't belong to Westlake Hills. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. This table belongs to Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that I invite you to participate in this sacrament. Come to the table not because you must, but because you may. Come to the table not because you are strong, but because you stand in need of God's help. Come to the table not to express an opinion, but to prayerfully seek the real presence of our living Lord. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is, it is right, right to, to give our, our thanks and praise. Most holy God, creator of heaven and earth, with joyful hearts, we offer you our thanks and praise. How wonderful are your ways, almighty God. How marvelous is your name, O holy one. You alone are God. Therefore, with apostles and prophets and that great cloud of witnesses who live for you beyond all time and space, we lift our hearts in joyful praise 